Well, today we're going to be in the book of Acts again. Uh, if you can read well, you probably figured that out. If you're online, welcome. We're glad you're here. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 today, and so I invite you to turn to your Bible there. Uh, but I want to recap a little bit of where we've been uh, over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, he has left sort of the comfort of uh, the church there, not really comfortable because persecution is happening, and now sailing to the island of Cyprus and now uh, into modern-day Turkey. Uh, back then it was called Asia Minor. And so on this map here that you'll see, uh, we can kind of review where he's been. He started out over there in Antioch. Uh, he went to the island of Cyprus, uh, then up into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, up to Antioch, Pisidia, and today, we're going to see him go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, uh, and those are the three spots that we're going to see he and Barnabas today. Uh, the easternmost part of Asia Minor, where uh, God-centeredness is not really existent anymore. And so he has left Antioch Pisidia, oh, that's okay, uh, left Antioch Pisidia, he's gone to Iconium, he and Barnabas go to Iconium. Uh, they go into the synagogue there, and they begin to teach and preach and share the gospel, and great numbers of people believe uh, in the message uh, of Jesus. But there were also a great number of Jews uh, who were against the message that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. And so now there's division in the city. These people who have found faith in Christ uh, against those Jews and other pagans who are against the gospel message. And it's a reminder to you and me that the gospel message, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, is the most inviting message in the world, but it's also the most divisive message in the world. Because it is a one-way kind of message. And so here, Paul and Barnabas are speaking this message of hope and reconciliation, forgiveness and grace, the power of God to overcome sin and death. They're proclaiming that message, and numbers of people are responding both positively and negatively. And so never forget, church family, that oftentimes resistance and rejoicing are connected, that when there's rejoicing over life change, when there's rejoicing over uh, the gospel moving forward, you're going to see resistance. That's true in your life. That's true in the life of the people that, that you associate with. That when you begin to make progress in, in your own faith, when you see God moving in mighty ways and you're rejoicing, know that resistance is coming. When you're engaged in other people and trying to share with them the truth of the message of Jesus Christ, that there are some who are going to rejoice and others who will do everything they can to deter you, to defeat you, to discredit you. Those two things are linked, and that's what's happening to Paul and Barnabas when they go to Iconium. They are seeing numbers of people rejoice, and similarly, numbers of people resist them. And so they kind of get run out of town, and so they head to Lystra, and that's where we're going to pick up the story in Acts 14, verse 8. It says this uh, about their next stop uh, on their journey. 
Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, that's an important phrase, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in their native language, which is Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, who was in that town, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a void, without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas have been run out of town and so they go to Lystra. This is a city that is unlike any other city they had been to because every other city they had been to had a synagogue, had a, had a place of sort of God-centeredness, had, had, a, had a community of faith in a sense where there were people who were God-conscious, capital G, God-conscious. But in Lystra, there is no synagogue. There, there's no place of worship to Yahweh. And so I imagine though Paul and Barnabas, we sort of see them as these mighty men of faith, these great missionaries who travel all over the known world to preach the gospel. I imagine probably in, though, in that moment when they got to that city, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, we're not in the Bible Belt. We're, we're not in our comfort zone anymore. We're in a place that truly is pagan. This is the first city where we see the gospel is going to a world without faith in Lystra. 
a place beyond their comfort zone of the synagogue. Don't ever be afraid to go with God beyond your comfort zone. More than likely, God is asking you in a number of ways, in a number of places, to go beyond your comfort zone to carry his message, to be a light on a hill. Don't be afraid because he is going with you. And so they go to this city, a a pagan city, a, a city that probably was the Del Webb of the ancient world. It was a retirement community for Roman military. Teenagers, you may not know what that is, but it's like the 55 plus communities around America. It's a retirement community from Roman military. And so Paul gets to the city, he's probably speaking and, and talking to people along the way, but he encounters this man who is crippled. And, and it's important that you see not just that he's crippled, but the detail to describe his immobility. He was crippled, lame since birth, never walked. Very familiar to to what Jesus encountered in the book of John with the lame man. Important to, to recognize the power of this miracle that Paul is about to see come to fruition. And so he looks intently at him. That phrase, look intently, is an important phrase in the New Testament. Peter uses it in Acts chapter 3. Paul uses it in Acts chapter 13 to look specifically at someone eye to eye, to gaze into their eyes, to see sort of the window into their soul, if you will, to to look at them with purpose. That Paul meant business and not in a mean way, but with compassion and grace. Uh, Eyes of a healer. Eyes of someone who had care beyond this man's imagination. He looks intently into the man's eyes and he says with a loud voice, not timidly, not like, um, hey, when nobody's looking, stand up and get out of here. No, he, he says in a loud voice with confidence in the power of God, get up, rise. And the funny part of this story is actually the man to me. The man gets up and walks away. And we don't ever hear anything from him again. It's like, hey, okay, I'm out. I'm going to head home, I guess. Go go visit the family. Haven't seen him in a while. And we never hear from him again. He just gets up and walks away. Like no commotion from him, but the townspeople go crazy. It's pandemonium when this happens. The, The residents of Lystra go wild. Because they think that Paul and Barnabas are now gods, little g-gods. They claim Barnabas is Zeus. Zeus is the greatest of the gods, little g-gods. And the irony here is that most uh, ancient, the ancient legend is that Zeus is from the island of Cyprus. Where was Barnabas born? Yeah, like easy, no trick questions today, okay? Like, I'm leading you to the answer, okay? Thank you for whispering it down here without confidence. Uh, But at least you got the answer right. Cyprus. Barnabas from Cyprus, which is kind of funny in the story. He's the the greatest, got dignified, kind of behind the scenes. You know, he's the puppet master. He's the one orchestrating everything. And then you have Paul, who they call Hermes. 
who is the spokesperson, the mouthpiece of Zeus. Now, I don't know if you've gone lately uh, on Google and searched for ancient gods, but you pull up Zeus. If you just Google Zeus, you're going to get tons and tons of majestic, amazing, wonderfully dignified images of this long-haired, bearded man who looks like a little G-God. But if you type in the letters H-E-R-M-E-S, do you know what you're going to find? Purses and purses and purses. Handbags galore for everybody. Mostly shades of brown. Hermes for you people. Hermes, the spokesperson of the gods. And they they probably liken Paul and Barnabas to these two gods because legend in that region was that at one point these two gods had, had left their realm and come to this region and sought refuge in a home. And they went to home after home after home after home and everyone rejected them until they got to this poor family and the poor family showed hospitality to them. And to pay back their hospitality, Zeus gave them a mighty temple and charged them with taking care of this temple, as legend would have it. And so the townspeople have this sort of story in their background. And so here these two men come upon the scene. They do a great miracle. They heal this man. And so they want to throw a party to these two gods. And they even get the pagan temple priest to lead the charge. He's got his ox and his garland. And let's, you know, wave the flags and get the banners outside of town and let's make some sacrifices and have a big party. Well, they're speaking in their native language and so Paul and Barnabas can't understand them. So it takes them a while to figure out actually what's happening. Sometimes that's true in our own lives. It takes a while to figure out what's going on, especially uh, when you're either speaking a foreign language or teenager. Uh, One of those is usually pretty tough to kind of figure out. And, And so they finally figure it out, and they're so distraught that they tear their clothes. Now, when we think about tearing our clothes, we think about like, you know, WrestleMania, you know, pulling it, you know, smack down, whatever, ripping the t-shirt off and showing how broad-chested we are, nicely shaven. Um, These guys didn't do that. Tearing your clothes in that era was simply ripping your collar down, which kind of girls do with sweatshirts these days, uh, ripping your collar down about halfway. And they're running through the city trying to stop the people from making this happen. And as they tear their clothes, I'm sure they're thinking back a few months ago. Because the last time they encountered someone who got told he was a god, things didn't end well for him. You might remember Herod. The people called him a god. He didn't correct them. And what happened? He got eaten by worms. Nobody wants to get eaten by worms. Nobody. 
And so I'm sure Paul and Barnabas remember uh, Herod and his demise. And so please don't call us gods. We want to live. And as they do that, as they try to stop everybody, in the midst of all the chaos, Paul is sharing a message. A, A message that's different than the message he shared before. Same message, different technique, different method. In the past, as we've looked at his stops along the way, he talks about Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He helps the people in the synagogue understand the history of Israel. And how at every point throughout the history of Israel has been pointing to the Messiah, the Savior. But here he doesn't do that. Because these people have no knowledge. They're ignorant of the history of Israel because they're not Israelites. They're Gentiles. And so rather than point to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one that the Old Testament speaks to, no, he shares with them a different approach. He points them to the creation account. He points them to God as the majestic creator who has blessed them beyond measure. That that God has given them the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And throughout history, he has allowed people groups to do whatever they want, to live how they will. And yet he has a witness still And his witness is creation. Through the fruitful rains for their crops, through the food that he's provided to give them nourishment, through the gladness in their hearts that he's created, there is only one true living God. Not these vain idols you've created, not these false gods who never appear. No, there is one true living God. And that living God has given you direct revelation through his creation. He has revealed himself. That's what revelation is, to be revealed. He has revealed himself through his creation to you. And you're accountable. You're accountable for that knowledge. You're accountable for what has been revealed to you. And so he shares that message. And as we notice in verse 18, it had mixed reviews. Because he was still having trouble restraining them from calling him Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. But the message landed, and it landed so much that these guys from the other towns wanted to stop it. They wanted to stop it. But Paul and Barnabas were committed that wherever they went, they were going to point people to the work of God. That might look different in different places, but they were constantly pointing people to the work of God. That's what you and I need to be doing. Constantly pointing people to the work of God. And that might look different in different scenarios in your life. That, that might look different depending on where you are at work or school or in your neighborhood or with family. 
It might look different with a stranger than with one of your best friends. But consistently, constantly, point people to the work of God. The challenge is when you and I do that, when we're consistent in our testimony, when we're consistent in our witness to the things of God, there's always someone right around the corner in a black hat, metaphorically, waiting to strike. It's always there. It was true for these guys. These Jewish leaders make the trek from Iconium and Antioch all the way to Lystra. This isn't like, hey, let's hop in the car and and go inside the loop. They had to make a commitment to go probably for days to chase these two missionaries down and try to get them to stop. People will be committed to stop you from being a light on a hill. They will. They try to stop Paul and Barnabas. And so they get on the scene. These Jews come from these two towns. And they make quick work of Paul and Barnabas. Having persuaded the crowds. That's crazy to me. That just as quickly as these people saw Paul and Barnabas as these great gods, they turned against them. Everyone is fickle, by the way. That's just a truth we all need to embrace. They get to witness Paul and Barnabas firsthand what it means to be pushed against, rejected, hurt, Injured, defamed. They get to see firsthand the firestorm that sometimes the gospel creates. And so, since they weren't gods, little g gods, they must be imposters. They must be fakes. Well, we can't have that. So, let's get rid of them. So, they drag them out. And they begin to stone them. These Jews have stirred up this pagan city. And they go out to stone them. And if you don't know about stoning, it's quite exciting. Because first, they they drag you, typically outside the city wall. They strip you of all your clothes. And then the witnesses to your crime, which could include things like worshiping false gods. How ironic. uh, Could be blasphemy. Could be child sacrifice, could be adultery, could be uh, dishonoring the Sabbath, lots of things that you could uh, be stoned to death for, capital punishment. So they drag you out, they strip you of your clothes, and the witnesses to your crime get to go first. So they get their rocks, and they start throwing them at you. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Like, what do you do in that moment? Is it like, you know, you know, you know, right? Protecting yourself, what do you do? And then the whole town gets to join in. The whole town. I don't know how big Lystra was, but let's just imagine that all the students at Friendswood High School, 2,000, give or take, got to throw rocks at you. If you're at Pearland, it's worse. <laughs> or Clear Springs. You guys at Bay Area are going to get off easy. But 
we, we, we sort of read this and like, oh, okay. No, getting rocks thrown at you until you die. That, that's what was happening. Standing up for your faith can be dangerous. Now, more than likely, you and I are not going to be stoned, that kind of stoned. We shouldn't be the other kind either. We're not going to have someone or someone's throwing rocks at us because of our faith. But you might have a meeting with your HR department that won't go well. You, you might be disenfranchised from your family for the rest of your life. You might get kicked out of some place, depending on where you take your faith. But there's a chance you might go to jail. But I wonder, if Paul and Barnabas were so confident in their faith that they were willing to go to this pagan place knowing that they could have died... How much, it, how much easier is it for us to share our faith? It's so much easier. Because we live in a community that's relatively God conscious. And so at least have the confidence to share the truth of, of God's word, to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because you're probably not going to be left for dead like Paul was. Left for dead. There's a tremendous miracle in the middle of this story. Paul is left for dead. They just, they just leave him and go back into town because they think he's dead. And then the little group of believers that have been there, they pick him up and wow, he's alive and he walks back into town. Now, there's some confidence. There's a little moxie for you. The people who just tried to kill you, you go back in and say, hey guys, what's up? Let me tell you about God's creation again. That's our calling. He preached the gospel and then he went to a different town, to Derby, the far eastern side of Asia Minor. Sort of the end, sort of the last train stop in Asia Minor. He goes there and many people were saved. And the wildest part of the story is actually the last few verses. Because Paul and Barnabas don't leave Derby and head back to their Antioch down in southern Turkey. No, what do they do? They go back through these three towns that just ran them out. They go back to Lystra. They go back to Iconium. And they go back to Antioch and Pisidia. The same towns that ran them out, they go back to, to encourage the church to bless the believers, to, to bring structure to the church, to appoint elders that, so that the church may flourish in the midst of persecution and heartache. They go back. They make the loop. We looked a few weeks ago that they dusted their feet off and went to the next town and now here they go back. Because there were people there who needed encouragement. 
There were more people there who needed Jesus. There were churches there that needed help. And so they go. Students, as you begin a new school year, as we all kind of get back into gear for the fall, don't, don't avoid difficult places when God is moving. Don't avoid those hard things when God is moving. Don't avoid that one mean kid. Don't avoid the gospel at work because you're afraid of the HR department. Use wisdom and grace. But don't avoid difficult places when God is moving. Because we have the power in the name above every name, the name of Jesus. And the reality is it may not end well. That conversation may not go right. It it may not end well. But you have the power to speak the name of Jesus everywhere you go. And so I invite you to take confidence in the power that you have in that name. I want to invite you to speak Jesus wherever you go. And you might need Jesus to speak into your life in a certain area, a certain circumstance. You need him to speak into that moment, into this place, into your situation right now. You may need him to speak into that. You may need him to speak into it for someone else. Maybe there's someone that you've been avoiding. Maybe you've failed to point people to the work of God. Maybe the joy in your life has waned a little bit and you're just sort of making it through. And you need to speak Jesus into those moments. And so as we close today, I want to invite you in a moment. We're going to stand and sing and we're going to sing. It's actually a new song that may not be familiar to everyone. But, but it has an important message And that message is that we can speak the name of Jesus wherever we are. So I invite you to go boldly, to look intently, to not be afraid of the difficult places in life because you have Jesus.